This is Binod Shankar and you're listening to the Real Finance Mentor podcast from the realfinancementor.com. The Real Finance Mentor is your go-to resource for insight and inspiration on careers in finance, CFA and more. I would think why this podcast? Well, my goal is to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance career by making it one relatable. This is not theoretical stuff. We zero in on the critical practical issues. Number 2, authentic. No bullshit, no sidestepping. The topics, guests and questions are all from that perspective. And number 3, take a charge account and CFA chart holder at 17 plus years as a corporate warrior, mixing 10 years of entrepreneurship, through a decade of full-time CFA training, at speaking, mentoring, cycling and mountaineering, and that's me. Welcome to the Real Finance Mentor, or as I call it, RFM. Hello everyone this is Binod Shankar here with the next episode of the Real Finance Mentor podcast the podcast that delivers insight and inspiration for your finance careers as usual uh, i go far and wide to find just the right guest to be on the show and today i have someone who was an ex student of mine and uh, who is uh, going to talk about his experiences in CFA in masters in finance and of course very importantly on wall street yeah. so my guest today is uh, hanutosh bariya hanutosh uh, basically did his uh, engineering bachelor's in engineering in electronics and communications from uh, birla institute of technology and then he did uh, a masters of science in financial engineering uh, from claremont graduate university in california and um, he then finished off with uh, the cfa um, uh, charter clearing all three levels of the CFA program in um, 2018. Um, and of course, in terms of his career, and that's what we're going to focus on uh, most of the time today, he, of course, uh, post-graduation um, as an engineer, spent some time in, in uh, sales and business development, a brief while, I would say. Uh, and then he uh, did his master's and he joined Barclays in New York as portfolio risk reporting analyst looking at key credit risk metrics um looking at uh, insights on portfolio counterparty moves uh and looking at uh, banking and trading book exposures but then he made a big jump after that which is interesting because he went uh, he joined Barclays Capital Incorporated uh as uh, this what he called the investment banking analyst in the Global Industrials Group where he looks after um, building models for leverage buyouts discounted cash flow models for example um, and includes uh, interface with teams including m&a leverage finance debt and equity capital markets credit risk and hanutosh has been involved in quite a few uh, transactions including lbos um, debt financing transactions um, and of course acquisitions so it's been an interesting journey for hanutosh which is why he is on the show uh, hanutosh uh, very glad to see where you are right now it's been about 3 or 4 years since i last saw you in class so impressed and very interested in knowing how you got there and uh, pretty much that's the whole theme of today's uh, interview thank you binod for this glorious introduction that you gave i am truly honored uh, definitely it has been a while since we met face to face i think it was back in 2016 i think that's when i saw you last it's been uh, but it's great always catching up and i think definitely you are one of the key integral parts of my success i mean without you and genesis and your training i think i wouldn't be any uh, where close to where i am uh, but yeah thank you so much for having me on the show cool now before we get to cfa the charter and where you are now I want to ask you a very interesting question. How did you get motivated as a freshly qualified electronics engineer to enter finance? Yeah. Given that you knew next to nothing about finance. Ah, uh, I think great question, Vinod. I think ah, uh, let's take a step back and add some more color to the story. So, per my recollection, the first time I ever heard about finance or remotely anything close to it was back in two thousand eight or nine when ah uh, the great financial crisis was taking place. I think there was a lot of buzz going around as to what's happening, and I just got curious and decided to read up on it as to what's going on. And one thing led to the other, and I stumbled upon the word structured products, and that was pretty interesting to me. And you know, it really fascinated me, and I just read it and I understood what's going on, and that was pretty much the end of it at for that point in time, right? Ah, uh, moving. 
moving onwards, uh, I completed my undergrad in 2013 and got a job in an IT consulting firm back in Dubai. Uh, great experience. I got to learn uh, business development sales, uh, but I very quickly realized that this is not something that I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was really great of me to realize that. And uh, so I started talking to one of my friends and, you know, I told him that finance is something that I would consider doing and I find interesting solely based on something that I had read a few years ago, but wasn't sure if I wanted to like make a full-time commitment to it because I didn't know anything apart from what I had read, right? Mm -hmm. So he basically suggested, why don't I take his CFA books and mm -hmm. give it a read to see if I actually find it interesting. I mean, thank God I didn't start with ethics, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I I gave it a I I definitely read a, a few chapters from uh, different subjects and I decided like based on the initial read, this is something that I definitely like just from the thought of what I was reading and I could definitely see myself doing this as a career mm. and uh, so this is something that I made a personal choice to make a switch right at this point right, right. as an engineer we this we solve problems right mm. I decided to use those so problem solving skills to solve the problems in the world of finance. So let's right. just put it that way. And uh, so, so, let, so let me come to that uh, point, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, and this is what happened because I've had a few engineering students in my CFA mm -hmm. classes and uh, they have varying experiences. Now, you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that mm -hmm. your electronics engineering degree helped you in your CFA journey. Now, this yep. is very surprising given the huge difference in domains. There's almost... Mm -hmm very little overlap in terms of topics. So tell me three ways in which your engineering background prepared you for the CFA journey, because I'm sure there are quite a few engineers out there who mm -hmm. are thinking about a career in finance and thinking about CFA. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, that, I mean, you heard that, right? When I said that, like, you know, engineering actually helped me a lot. So engineering in general, right, is an interdisciplinary study where you're taught advanced concepts on mathematics, science, and a little bit of business management here and there, depending on which course you join, right? And essentially, it is then used, like all your knowledge is then used to like design and conduct experiments, identify and solve problems, right? And make things easier. So it's pretty much like a packed uh, four-year intense program uh, where you're challenged to learn different things and concepts and then apply it in either forms of assignments, projects, or, you know, various different, uh, to just test your knowledge, right? Mm. And you're consistently tested and challenged on these things. Like, and, and at every level, like, you know, it increases, like your challenges increase and your complexity increases. So let me give you an example, right? Mm -hmm. So let's take mathematics as a subject, right? There are various equations and most of it are actually derived from one thing or the other. It starts from one equation and then you build on it, right? And that just helps you think through different things and how to solve problems, right? And so basically, as I said, like the equations are derived from one of the other. And there is always, there is always, there could be always one right answer, but there are multiple ways to get uh, to the right answer, right? And that is something that you're taught during the course. It's not uh, like either it's like it's not a one one way street. You can probably mm -hmm. find multiple ways to solve the answer, uh, and that's that's something that is taught in the course. And I think from my engineering uh, program, something that I really learned and is transferable is basically logic and reason. That's one we are actually taught how one thing relates to the other and how it could be used to look at uh, how you can get to the answer using various different mm. uh, steps. Mm. Two are basically, uh, I would consider as technical skills, uh, strong technical skills. Like, and what I mean to say is that you're actually given formal training uh, in mathematics and other scientific concepts, which you might not think are useful then, but they're actually relevant to wide variety of concepts. Mm. Uh, and I can give you an example of that. One of it being like, you know, stochastic processes, something that I really remember learning about was uh, stochastic basically means random, right? So in one of my classes uh, in, I think, cellular telecommunication, we, I still remember this was that uh, when you transfer uh, data, the way data is transferred is basically you have a header, uh, header uh, cell and then there's data between and there's an ending cell. And when it's transmitted over device, it basically mixes up. So there's a stochastic process used to randomize the data so that no one can hack into it. And then at the receiver end, it's again used uh, to uh, lay out the data again. So this mm -hmm. concept is also used in finance uh, for solving for bond volatility or option pricing and so on and so forth. So that's that. And then the third thing mm -hmm. that I learned was 
critical thinking, right? The ability to actually ask questions, like ask why, why is this happening? Why is this taking place? I think that's a very important thing that you learn just mm-hmm. to question everything. And that's very transferable, like, you know, to finance and other aspects in other fields as well. Mm-hmm. And I think the fourth thing that I learned was just the ability to work under pressure. Like if I remember correctly, like every semester was approximately four to five months. We had roughly six subjects each semester mm-hmm. and each subject had like four, uh, four exams plus labs. So a lot of pressure, like, you know, every month you're pretty much studying, giving exams, uh, trying to like move on and the difficulty keeps increasing. So like a lot of work, a lot of deadlines to meet. That's something that you learn to work under pressure. Mm. And so, yeah, I think definitely all these above have definitely helped me in uh, my CFA journey. And, you know, these are all transferable skills, which I feel like, you know, having an engineering degree helps uh, just lay a base uh, in anything you do in life. And I mean, if you just, I mean, to be honest, like engineering is great, but like other fields as well play an important part because they just help you understand or look at things in a different way. I mean, Mm -hmm. on Wall Street, I have seen folks come in from history majors, art majors, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can from commerce backgrounds, finance backgrounds, and all of them are put into investment uh, analysis. And that's just because of the way they look at different things. And that's something that's most important to understand. Yeah. I mean, I recall you struggled a lot initially in my FRA clause in level one, right? <laughs> I, I, I it was a vast that. and alien topic for you, I'm sure. Uh, I recall you coming to me uh, with you know very yeah. an- anxious look on your face. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you also failed level one CFA once. Yeah, uh, yes, I did. Now, this must have affected your motivation. So my question is, what are the three thoughts, um, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to boil down the essence of mm-hmm. What made you persevere through this alien complex mm-hmm. loss domain and ultimately come out successful? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, I definitely uh, failed level one. Uh, that's something I actually cherish. Uh, and it was like my first time in my life uh, that I'd actually experienced failure. Uh, and you know, that was something very difficult to deal with because, you know, all the, all these years, maybe like 20, 21 years of your life, you're breezing through things and you're like, okay, I know what I'm doing. And then you're dealt a hard hand mm. and you don't know what to expect, right? And especially like I got a band 10 in my level one, which was like so close to passing. And I was like, oh my God, how, how did I not pass, right? Mm. So definitely really demotivating when I got you know my results because I wasn't expecting failure, right? I mean, no one expects failure as such. Yeah. But to be honest, I am actually thankful for uh, my failure because it actually gave me a reality check and it made me understand where I'm going wrong, right? Mm. So at that time in my head, I knew like, uh, how did I overcome this? Was basically, I knew like failure wasn't an option. I tried something totally different and I fail and that is okay with me uh, to fail as long as you keep getting up and you know trying on and moving on with it. And the second thing was, this was something that I really wanted to do. And if I just gave it up on my first try, I mean, mm. there would be nothing. I would probably be left as to where I was and I would not be able mm. to pursue my dream. So I had to like keep pushing through it. Mm. So these were some of my motivation factors. Of course, like my parents and my friends just pushed me through it. And of course, you were like a very good motivational uh, motivation to me at that point of time that mm. it's okay to fail. And I, I, I mean, in, in even like in day-to-day life, I feel it's okay to fail as long as you get up and keep trying on and move on with it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the CFA journey must still be vivid in your mind. I, I know it's what I've qualified in 2015 and I still remember my level two and level three journeys vividly, right? Yeah. So tell me the top challenge in each of level one, level two and level three that you faced and one way how you cracked uh, each level. Yeah. So I think you're right. Like, you know, uh, Every CF, every every level of the exam poses a different and a unique set of challenges. And as you progress with them and you level up, it just gets tougher and tougher. So let's start with mm. level one, right? Like level one for me was absolutely like a new curriculum. Every subject that I went through was absolutely new. Never like, you know, study anything, maybe except for like some statistical concepts like mean, median, average, which everyone knows about it. So I guess I was pretty much brand new to this. So for me, level one was basically about building the base, just in general, like, you know, learning uh, from ground up what finance is, learning about the factoids, understanding what time value of money is, different concepts in corporate finance and so on and so forth. And uh, the toughest subject for me was FRA, I think, out of everything. 
I had no idea what a balance sheet looks like. And I think now that I think about it, how much of an impact it has made to me in my day-to-day life. I mean, at that point, I thought I would never want to do anything remotely close to FRA. And now in what I'm doing, it's pretty much like my daily bread and uh, bread and butter. So as I was saying, like, as I was initially struggling to understand what I was going through and uh, I was trying to just learn, like, you know, it's like memorize concepts rather than actually making a conscious effort of understanding them. And once I realized that memorizing is not going to help me, uh, I started taking a different ab- approach to every subject, including FRA, right? Instead of hating the subject, I started showing interest towards it, trying to join the dots as to like what it's trying to show me mm. and teach me, right? And then it just became easier to understand what, what was happening. And as I mentioned earlier, like I had failed in level one. So the second time around, I knew I was very close to understand. I, I knew I was very close to passing and I just had to pay attention on what my weak subjects are. Mm. Realized that where I made mistakes and, you know, uh, made sure that I was trending those areas before moving on, there was no knowledge gap, right? If something was trying to be taught to you, you understood that. Mm. And I was also like less stressed out. Like initially I was more stressed out when you're in stress, you sometimes don't end up thinking the right way. But this time uh, I was less stressed out, which made things yeah. much better for me. Mm. And, you know, I remember that, I mean, we had a chat after I failed level one and you gave me a game plan as to what to do next. And I mm. pretty much stuck to the game plan to make sure like, you know, there was no knowledge gaps. I understood what was being asked for uh, in each LOS. And I think uh, what I was trying to teach me before moving on. And I think the most important thing was practicing, right? Like, yeah, sure, mm. you learn everything, but the best way to remember it and actually apply it is actually through practice, actually solving multiple questions. So I think I made sure I solved across all levels. I made sure I solved all the end of chapter questions, the blue box examples I actually went back to understand if I missed out on something. So that was like level mm. one. Right. I think I gave my level one again in December, 2014. Yeah. And uh, so I got my results in Jan, end of Jan, 2015. And I passed. I was pretty happy about that. Uh, that I moved on from the base level. Now now it's like level two, right? Now, basically, now this level kind of poses a different challenge altogether, right? It's a vast mm-hmm. syllabus. Now we have learned the basic fundamentals, the basic building blocks of each subject, what it is. Now, level two teaches you all about valuation, right? It's a vast subject. I think if I remember correctly, uh, the curriculum size is approximately one to two times larger than level one. It's, it's very vast and in-depth, uh, and it's a tough process, right? And now the game has changed because now it's no longer like one sentence or two sentence questions with three answers. It's more like a case study. You actually read a big case study, understand, synthesize the information given to you at different parts, and then try to apply that together in uh, solving the exam, right? So I knew like, this was like, this was back in Feb uh, 2015 and the exam was June 1st week, 2015. So like roughly three to four months left, I knew like, you know, I had no time to waste and I had to make sure that I I wanted to make sure that I understood everything, what I was reading and did not underestimate the exam because I knew what kind of a beast it was. So when I was preparing for my exam, I based first, I think I first started reading all, uh, I completed my first reading by end of April, made sure I solved, practiced enough questions, you know, did all the blue box examples, end of chapter questions and gone through most of uh, like question and did it over and over again till I was comfortable. Now for my level two, right? My game strategy was to nail down FRA and equity because at that time, those were the heavy, heavier weighted subjects in the exam, followed by, you know, focusing on other subjects which were uh, like in rank after that, after those like fixed income, corporate finance, ethics, quants. And that's how it, it went on. And I made sure to practice a lot of questions. Most importantly, like, you know, time myself. It's very important. Like you have, you have a big, big something to read. Like you have a big case study to read and then answer the questions. It's not easy. And definitely making sure like I answered each question approximately in three minutes before moving on. And um, so, yeah, I think once I, so I basically finished my second reading of Schweizer notes by first week of May. And now basically I had pretty much three weeks left for the exam. And all I was doing in that time was revising my formulas, getting up every day in the morning, writing down. It took me like an hour and a half. I'd find time, like write down each and every formula. So I remember and understand each and every formula as to when it's asked. And uh, then basically just going over the secret sauce, practicing multiple uh, CFA mock exams, 
and just getting ready for the exam. I mean, at this point, like you just have to focus. You just know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. There's no way you can learn anything new in the last one week. So I was mostly focusing on what I knew, my strengths, and just you know, you just go and give the exam. There's no way you know that you're gonna nail the exam or not because level two and level three are like totally uh, humongous in your syllabus. And yeah, so that was it. And I passed my level two back in uh, in my first time in 2016, June. And yeah, that was definitely a big victory for me. Now moving on to level three. So level three, I gave it in June 2018, I think almost two years post my level two uh, while I was working uh, at Barclays. As I went to the US and to do my master's, I didn't realize, I, I did realize that it wasn't a good idea to study CFA and complete my master's at the same time. So level uh, three was basically pushed back a little bit, but I definitely wanted to make sure that I cleared because this was like the last hurdle. Now that you've cleared all two thirds of the way, it does make sense to do the last thing again, like last mm -hmm. level again. So level three, right, uh, was again a different challenge again. Uh, and in this case, in level one, like, you know, you learn the factoids, you learn various subjects and basic concepts. Now in level two, when you, you build on those concepts and you learn valuation and how they combine and play together. And now level three is when you start thinking like a portfolio manager, right? You basically use what you have learned in your level one and level two, plus everything was taught in level three and put it together and think of how you're going to manage the whole portfolio. Now it's no longer like a particular subject. Now everything is combined together and asked multiple questions. You can be asked questions on anything, right? And you should be able to answer that. So, and to top it off, level three has a slightly different uh, exam layout where in the morning half of the session is a written exam and the evening half is the multiple choice, which is, which is what you're some, uh, familiar to from level two, uh, which is also very important, right? And what something that I realized from in that exam is that you cannot write stories in your morning uh, section of the paper. People wanna see, uh, to the point, concise answers, highlighting important facts. And if it's like a numerical, you make sure you write your formula down, you write different steps and you get the answer. So in case, you know, somewhere down the line, you missed up some decimal or something goes wrong in your uh, arithmetic, that's fine. At least you're, the examiner who's checking your paper knows where you stand and you know the formula and he'll give you partial credit, if not full. Hoping that, that's always a hope, right? If you write like 2.3 as an answer, if it's completely wrong, you lose out all the points. Basically, you don't get full credit for it. So the biggest challenge for me was like to think like a portfolio manager and write concise answers. And that did not happen overnight, of course, because the last time I wrote was pretty much when I was in uh, my master's program. And at work, you barely use a pen or a pencil to write anything down. It's usually your keyboard and how you think about it. So. What I did was basically I started to practice to write answers in the exam format over uh, over time. You know, I see I saw the solutions from what was provided in the CFA curriculum and try to match that similar similar layout for answering the questions. And you know, over time I got the hang out of it. Uh, and my strategy for level three was basically to tackle the biggest subjects that were private and institutional wealth management first, and followed by others based on the weighting. And I was using practice tools provided by CFA and Schweizer. Uh, and I made sure I did not also lose uh, sight of the multiple choice questions because I, those you still have to be fast in that and you have to uh, get those answers right, right? And I also made sure that I was making very few to minimal mistakes on problems, like numerical problems. And that's because there's only one answer and you either get it right or wrong. There's no two ways. So... And that's a sure shot. If you get it right, if you know the formula, those points are yours. So I want to make sure that I capture every point on that, uh, on that aspect, and also get good at what I was doing otherwise as well. So in level three, like you know, for CFA, I had to become more consistent uh, and just understand the exam concept and just write write the answer. But something that's very, a, a common theme that I've seen across all three levels is that apart from it getting harder each level, you as a person have to be more consistent, diligent, and you know how to be smart towards how you approach the exam. And uh, you know, you at least for me, I used to take out like two to three days, uh, two to three hours a day uh, on a work day after my work to sit down and study for the exam. And on the weekends, like I think for 
all the exams. I used to put in like seven, eight hours every weekend to make sure I am catching up uh, and understanding syllabus mm-hmm. and going through all the materials and absorbing it. Yes. So that was my journey. Yeah. That, that's quite a journey, of course. And, and thanks for narrating it in so much detail. I think it will be useful yeah. to anyone aspiring to write level one or two or three. Now, while you were doing CFA, you thought one challenge is not enough. <clears throat> and enrolled during the level three journey, while you were doing level three for the master's in financial engineering program from Claremont. Correct. So I've got three yes. questions for you and we'll go through each one, one after the other. Mm-hmm. Right? So my first question is, why a master's that too an expensive US one? Mm-hmm. Wasn't Correct. CFA enough? So I think uh, like there are a couple of reasons for that, right? Like c- considering my background in engineering and only cleared le- CFA level two, not a lot of people or employers, I would say, considered me seriously as a candidate uh, for pursuing any role in finance because I didn't have a full uh, degree, I would say, in in finance. So that was one reason. Uh, so I decided like to pursue I think now would be a good time if I want to do make a full career switch from engineering uh, to finance to actually get a formal degree or education, if you say, uh, which will help me secure more knowledge plus you know the certification required or like a check mark that okay this guy has certified in this and we can actually consider him for other positions as well. So back in 2015, you know when I was in when I was in Dubai, I was looking for some roles, but I did not find any roles that was of mm. interest or in finance. So I decided maybe now is a good time to do my master's first and then come back and look at how things go. That was my first motivation. So my my second question here, yes, is, so master's in financial engineering. Now, what did you specifically learn in the master's that Mm -hmm. wasn't in the CFA program? I'm sure there was not a complete overlap. There must be, there would have been overlap some to some extent. Correct. But what is that uh, you learned that you would not Mm -hmm. have learned in the the CFA program? So, so I think my master's in financial engineering program, uh, in my opinion, was helpful. And that was because like the program was basically split into two parts. So first part was finance that you learned in your CFA. And then the other parts was other part was mathematics, right? So we first learned the financial theory of what was taught in CFA. And then definitely there were some other areas which kind of went deeper than the CFA curriculum. <clears throat> uh, and Apart from that, there was a lot of project work, like you know, forming your own equity analysis, portfolio management uh, training given to you. So it's like you learn this in class, and then you have to do projects or assignments to actually apply what you learn. And that's something that is, you know, that that help you get ready for your real life job. Like you study equity analysis or valuation. Now you're as a company, read through its financial uh, like statements, 10K what's the industry doing, write up an equity research and tell me why is it a good, bad or any kind of investment thesis. It's just to get it started, right? And that's something that would kind of help you in your day-to-day life, in your real work life. And apart from that, the other half of the course was basically learning the mathematical side of finance, like, you know, studying stochastic calculus, time series, probability, and other subjects which actually taught you how that back-end formula is derived. Like CAPM is one formula, but it's like you see it in the book as like one line statement, but it's not, no one came up with that one line statement. There is definitely a lot of math involved behind it. And that's something that we learned of how, how do you use mathematics to actually adjust an option pricing uh, theorem for volatility? How do you uh, calculate different bond prices using various equations and so on and so forth? So we lo- and also we learned a lot of programming and other data science tools, which were like complementary to your, to my knowledge in finance. So it, it kind of like evolved you into a broader skill set. So my master's program as uh, like, it also gave me access uh, to my school's network and brand name. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my alumni who were graduated uh, were great resources to talk to. My school had connections with other firms, which were uh, like, actively, you know, uh, employing. So that was also a good way, uh, resources and and resources when when you're looking for a full-time opportunity. So in my opinion, I guess, uh, like it was useful for me, but for people who are already in the industry of finance and want to do this forever, I don't think, you know, there is a need for them to do masters. Yeah. CFA for sure will help you get wherever you want, but that, that would probably be it. The knowledge is great. But if you're already in industry, don't plan to switch out of it. I think this your CFA would be just be fine. 
So basically, what are you what are you saying, Anitosh, is if you want to break into finance, core finance, and you're not working in finance, then masters helps open doors that a CFO would not help open for you. Correct. Like you know, I think the way the world works, or at least what I've seen, is that they at least look for like if you want to get into finance, an MBA is required, or like a CFA, or some formal education is required. And for me, that was the bridge that I wanted to uh, uh, like uh, complete. Like I just want to bridge the gap that I had in my resume, and that was pretty much what I did. And also gained in that process, gained a lot of knowledge, made a lot of friends and professional connections. Right, which of course brings me neatly to my next question. Right, and something I've mm-hmm. always wondered. How was the CFA program and the CFA charter regarded on Wall Street? I mean, specifically, mm-hmm. where is it highly regarded and relevant, and where is sure. it less so? So I think, uh, from what I've heard and what I've seen, I think the CFA uh, charter refers to the gold standard in finance across the street, but it's specifically highly regarded in asset management, equity research, credit research, and you know other various risk management roles. You'll actually see job descriptions mentioning that. CFA uh, designation or progress towards your CFA charter is highly preferred. And like in your asset management field, I think clients also, from what I've heard, clients feel more comfortable dealing with CFA charter holders, at least giving the thought that this, this guy knows what he's doing, mm-hmm. if nothing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what, I guess I would like, conclude by saying like asset management, equity research, credit research, and various other risk management roles were, is where your CFA charter comes uh, to play. And right. it's highly regarded that if even if you don't have one, uh, they actually make you get one over time. So right. that's something. Right. But I think the other places where it's not that relevant is like you know investment banking, private equity, hedge funds, trading roles. That that role, those roles kind of don't mandate right. a CFA designation. Right. Although the knowledge you learn is very important and useful, but it's just like you know it's the the charter is not. mandated you should you can still do in that industry without having a charter right so yeah so we're neatly segueing into investment banking right which is mentioned just now mm-hmm. so so your engineering degree was done uh, got your cfa charter and mm-hmm. finished your masters in financial engineering uh, and i want to talk about this um, move of yours into investment banking in a, in a big firm in wall street now although you didn't come from a target school Uh, i.e. the harvards or 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 stanfords or mit's mm-hmm. which is typically where the big investment banking firms hire from you still got right. investment banking in a big firm in wall street now yes i know you didn't get into investment banking directly post your masters in financial engineering so tell me exactly what you did and how to get mm-hmm. to ib correct uh so i think it's a long journey and i think uh let me explain to you step by step so as an international student my first priority was to secure a job right so i start when i i was graduating in 2017 but i started networking a year prior to my graduation i started adding people on linkedin connecting with them and reaching out to learn more about what they do what their background is and just to learn more about the job and just to make a connection in general i would actually never ask them for a job like right up i would actually go there and ask to learn what they are doing and what they do and ask them genuine questions regarding their background and the day to day duties and form meaningful relationship in the same time as to understand is this something that i wanted to do or from what i heard is something that i like right that's the starting point and then i also attended a lot of networking sessions hosted by cfa and my uh grad school so that kind of helped me make more connections and you know you meet various working people i would exchange my cards with their cards make sure Make sure I follow up with them with an email saying that hey, I met you yesterday. It was great meeting you, and love to catch up sometime soon again. And just keep maintaining a connection. It's very essential. Like you know, over time, getting your name out there is in the market, and getting uh, recognized over time is something that is the was my starting step. And you know, I always used to follow up with whoever I reached out after a few weeks or months, saying that it and it could be related to anything. Right, the follow up doesn't mean that I'm again pestering them on the same thing. i would basically go and i would see an interesting article that was relevant to their field and i would ask them questions or it could be as simple as happy thanksgiving merry christmas have a great year we should probably connect in the upcoming year and that basically just kept me in front of their eyes and in their minds so that anything comes up uh they would probably you know uh think about me and that was like the, that's what i was doing and you know 
at the end of it, it's always a numbers game, right? The more people you reach out to and connect, the higher chances are getting closer to an interview and landing a job. So similar thing I did uh, to secure my uh, first role at Barclays as well. Back in 2016, February, I was visiting New York and I happened to ask one of my professors, do we have any distinguished alumni who I can meet over the next one week uh, or who, who he, could, he could introduce me to uh, when I was making my trip to New York. And, you know, he mentioned that one of our professors at that time, uh, whose teacher at Claremont was also the chief risk officer of Americas at Barclays. And I was like, yes, absolutely. I have to meet him. And he connected me and he, he fortunately agreed to meet me. And, you know, we I went to New York and met him and that was like our, my start of my friendship with him. And that was, that was the beginning. And over time, you know, when he came to Claremont, I used to always go say hi to him, at least just say, have a conversation with him to make sure that I was there, attend his classes, make sure I did good. And, you know, we kind of bonded apart from the classes and the formal setting just as friends over time. And then now fast forwarding a year ahead uh, to Jan February, 2017, I was actually looking for a job. Now it's coming closer to graduation. My thing was to, land a job before I graduate. So I don't have the headache uh, after that. So I was focusing really hard on that. And I was talking to one of my seniors at that time, he had graduated and he was actually working at Barclays. So I reached out and he said, uh, hey, there's this role coming up in my team. You know, you could, you might actually like it. Think, and he told me about the role. So I actually enjoyed it from what I heard. And I said, I reached out to my professor saying that, hey, this I heard from, uh, from my fellow colleague or my friend that there's this role in Barclays and could it would it be possible for you just to make an introduction with me apart from him to, uh, to someone else within the firm? And he actually made the connection and it was one of the heads of that department where the role was opening up. And I actually, we, the person and I actually had a conversation for an hour, hour and a half, and we actually enjoyed uh, speaking uh, with each other. And that basically led on to other things. And I met with other four or five folks uh, and had such conversations. And one thing led to the other, those were, my four or five interviews that I had and landed a role in in my portfolio credit risk team. And that was my first role at Barclays. Now, basically, you know, I had been at the organization for a year or so. And after completing my CFA level three in July, in June, 2018, I decided I wanted to move into a front office role where I could actually, you know, use the knowledge that I'd gained uh, through a formal training and decided like to pursue a career in investment banking. So as I was already an employee of Barclays, it was kind of slightly easier because I knew which people worked where and what departments they were part of. So I actually started networking. I repeated the same process. Basically, I started networking with senior managing directors within the firm in areas where I wanted to be a part of or what I thought was interesting. And you know, I sent out just cold emails asking them, hey, for informational chats and wanted to learn more about their work and background. And I think if I had to take a guess, I must have easily messaged more than like 100 MDs plus easy, easy across like various teams uh, that I was passionate about joining. And, you know, my hit rate was like 50%. Some, some people would reply back, some people are busy, that, that's fine. I understand. I totally understand that. And I just always follow up. And, you know, through my networking again, uh, one thing led to the other. Someone reached out saying that, hey, there's this role opening up in my team. Would you be interested? And I said, yes, absolutely. And I interviewed, I think six interviews later, uh, I landed my job in, in investment banking. So yeah. That's, that's, uh, so. Yeah, that's quite an interesting <laughs> journey. I mean, uh, as I mentioned to you in our earlier talks as well, <clears throat> I think quite a few things that youngsters can learn from. Now, talking about youngsters, uh, Hanatosh, <clears throat> one of the biggest fears that youngsters have is that of approaching senior professionals and asking for help because they might either get a rude response or worse, probably no response at all. Yet Correct. you did that repeatedly in your journey all the way from masters to investment banking, right? So mm -hmm. explain to me, what was your mindset here? Correct, absolutely. So I think my mindset was very simple, right? I had a vision in mind and I wanted to get there and I knew my final outcome and networking was a great way to learn about new people, new areas within the bank or new areas within the industry itself form professional relationships. And in turn, you know, it could end up someday getting someone to like you and like going for an interview, right? So at every every time that I was looking for a job, either in risk or investment banking, I formed meaningful relationships with someone in that field, understanding uh, what they do, then analyze uh, this. Is, is this something that I want to do? 
for the next few years of my life and uh, then pursuing it after. So when I wanted to make a switch in investment banking, I was very clear of what I wanted to do. That was number one. I, so then I came up with an invest, like an elevator pitch, right? A two minute story on why, what, 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 what my story is, what my background is and what my experiences are and how they have led me to where I am and how my experiences will help me uh, go further and I could be a right candidate for this role. So I had to explain my story very well. I had, I had my reasons to why I want to do this and why I would be considered a good candidate for this. That was very important, right? You essentially have to sell yourself, right? At the end of it, anything and everything you do in life in one way or the other is sales. Like you want a job, what are you doing? You're actually pitching yourself uh, and your skills to an employer. That's in a way sales, right? So as I embarked on this journey, I think some things that I found interesting was that one, I found out, like I made sure which teams within investment banking were of interest to me. That's one. And two, who were the senior folks in the team and, and who I should connect with. That Those were the key, uh, key strategies that I implemented. And my thought process was slightly different you know, and non-conventional. Usually when people approach, they decide to talk with the junior people first and you know, in the team and then work their way up, right? I decided to do the other way around. I thought like, if I actually wanted to live in someone's house, I don't want to it didn't make sense to ask the person who was renting the house rather than ask the owner who owns the house, can I live in your house? So I pretty much used the same analogy and decided to reach out to the gatekeepers of the team or like the heads of the team. Uh, so I was, I, I only reached out to like uh, senior managing directors or heads of the teams. I was very careful in my approach as well. Like, you know, they are very busy people and I don't want to waste their time. And if I got a chance uh, to speak with them, I don't want to mess it up. So when I met them in person, I made sure like I had my story patted down, uh, completely knew it. Uh, I knew my reasons why I want to do this, why I would be a good candidate and actually come up with interesting questions to ask them. Something like, you know, if they worked on a really good deal, uh, I would love to know like what was the most challenging part of the transaction or what went through, what was going through their minds and asking questions which were not found online and, or basically just saying, not asking generic questions, right? So that, that was basically that. That's how I got to like, you know, learn more about that. And in, in my head, essentially, right? I think this is, let me relate networking to something that we learn in uh, CFA, right? Networking is like a free call option, right? Where there is no premium that you have to pay for it. And there's only potential unlimited upside uh, to this. So let me, let me explain it a little further, right? So if you reach out to network, right? The best thing that could happen is that you meet the person, the person really likes you, you potentially get called for an interview. And ultimately, if you crack all the rounds, you get hired for the job, right? That is unlimited upside in my case. The worst thing that could actually happen is you won't get any response received from them. And you know you still stay at the same place where you are. Essentially, in my head, this would probably be the most profitable trade that anyone could actually get into. And it's free of cost. You just have to reach out and ask. And of course, like, you know, initially I was concerned of reaching out to seniors, but the sooner I realized that they are human beings and uh, I had nothing to lose, the more I implemented my strategy. The only thing that I had, had to do was basically to prepare on why I wanted to do this and wanted to be excited to learn uh, from what they had to say. So, yeah, that was how I did it. Fascinating. I know. Anatosh, it seems that given uh, your narration of your journey, that knowing the right mm-hmm. people played as big a part as having the right credentials. Absolutely. Um, now, going forward, a uh, tight job market, lots of mm-hmm. supply, limited demand from employer's side. <clears throat> Absolutely is essential that youngsters quickly understand the basics of networking. So given your experience, can you list your top five networking tips for youngsters who are yeah ambitious and smart but a bit naive about how to proceed sure absolutely so i think like you know the first step that is is that before you start networking you should only pick one or two jobs maximum of two jobs that you want to pursue and not more than that because when you narrow down the scope it makes it much easier for you to network and easier to prepare if you're choosing like five different fields you got to learn five different subjects and you know that's not the best way uh, to use your time and resources. So that's one, like narrow down 
on uh, the jobs like that you really like and have it in rank, like number one, ranking one and two, like that, that, that's how you start. And then second, I would say is that, you know, you should never be afraid to reach out to people and connect however senior or junior they are. This is the only way you will actually get yourself out there and be marketable and presentable in front of people. They will not know who you are till you actually reach out to them, right? Third is basically, I would say, know your audience, right? If you are speaking to someone who's working in, let's say, risk management, right? And if you ask them about a job in asset management, that would be a waste of their time and your time, right? As he basically would feel that you have not done uh, your homework to understand where he works. And two is that he actually might be limited in that capacity to help you out because he's in a different field and you're asking help from him to go in a completely different field. So that's very limiting. Uh, next is basically, I would say like never ask for a job, rather be genuine in connecting with the person uh, to learn more about the field he is in, what he is doing and forming a meaningful relationship. Yes, you know, down the line, if things work up and you've shown interest and, you know, made a strong impression, he'll definitely keep you in mind and that's how you pop up. And basically, if you form a really good relationship, I would remember, oh yeah, this person reached out to me. I think he might actually be good for a role. Let me just ring him up and see if he's still interested or available for this position, right? I would, the next thing I would say is like networking is like, you know, not a, like a one-time exercise when you just reach out to people, connect with them once and expect miracles to happen or take place. You know, it's a uh, networking is more like, you know, a long-term investing. Like you actually have to invest uh, in in this process it's a very long-term process where you keep in touch with people like just it could be anything right just being in front of them and over time it'll actually be benefits and you know like last but not least like is that when you are speaking to someone senior make sure you have your story patted down as to why you want to do this what makes you a good candidate and always have something some interesting questions and not some generic questions that you can find answers to online Mm-hmm. Uh, because like, you know, the first question they'll ask you is like, okay, why do you want to do this? And if you fumble or don't have a right answer, I could, ju- I would just be like, okay, this is just someone regular who is just looking for any job and he's really not interested in this one. And he's just reaching out. So you are, and I think, so that's something that's very important to like know your story and why you want to do this. And also like, you know, you're trying to learn as much as possible about the field mm-hmm. uh, when you go out there and network. So you have to like, and the best way to do it is basically asking questions uh, that and which also shows curiosity uh, to the person who you're talking to, right? And that kind of makes them think, okay, this guy's actually interested in this. Right, right. Now, now you've been <clears throat> investment banking, Hanatosh, for nearly yeah. one and a half years mm-hmm. and have been involved, if uh, I mean, looking at your resume, in quite a few big deals, including leveraged buyouts, acquisitions, yeah. uh, debt financing, right? So I've got yep. a few questions for you. Firstly, uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of youngsters see investment as a very sexy field, you know, investment <laughs> banking, and they yeah. all say they want to get a break into IB, but yep. most of them have no clue of mm. skill set IB demands. So, what mm-hmm. are the top three skills, i.e., aptitude? Okay, uh, all right, that you must have to succeed. Okay, so I think the most important skills, right, is technical skills. Like you can see, like accounting, valuation; those are very important. That's your daily bread and butter, and you should, that's the bare minimum requirement. That's not even a requirement for you to get selected. Like if you, it's like a tick mark. Like, okay, he has it like every other candidate, like every other candidate who's interviewing will know his technical skills. So that's the first place to start with. Uh, but that's not the only thing, right? Second thing, what is like an aptitude wise, like I would say like, you know, taking initiative, like when if some, something work comes along, like you should be able to like for, be the first person, like raise your hand, uh, say that you would do it. And, but you should kind of always have to be careful when you say yes, because if you try pleasing everyone or saying yes to everything, you're essentially setting yourself up to failure as there are only 24 hours in a day. And those deadlines mm-hmm. are rarely shipped, right? Third thing I would suggest is like, you know, attention to detail, because sometimes like the devil is in the details, like you might not pay attention to it, but like at the end that could actually make it a break or a like win, win or lose situation for you. Third, I think, or like the fourth thing I would say would be like, you know, problem solving and critical thinking uh, is something that's very important. Quite a few times you'd be given work uh, and you'd be expecting that, you know, you would be taking off on this work from someone else and helping them out, making them, uh, relieving them of this duty and like helping them think of bigger picture stuff. 
So in this case, of course, they'll guide you and help you. But you know, sometimes, most times people are busy in other things and you might not get constant attention. So for you to actually able to like, you know, solve the problem given to you or think critically, uh, that's very important. And that kind of shows that if you can do that, okay, we are giving him some responsibility. He's able to do that. Let's move forward and give him higher responsibility. I think that's what they say, right? Like in, in banking, like before we help you merge two companies, show me uh, complete this simple task before you actually end up doing something very heavy. So getting, getting the trust is very important of a person. Right. So that was two top three um, <clears throat> aptitude or skills that you need, right? Correct. What are the top three attitude in terms of, you know, uh, your, your yeah. approach to work that you must have in IB to succeed? So I think like something that's very important is like, you know, your soft skills, like your personality, how you speak, how you connect with people, how you present your work is very important. At the end of it, like any, any, any job that you do is re- requires some sort of like personal connection. And if you're an easy person to work with, that's much better for, for you and everyone compared to not being an easy person to work with. Two would be like, you know, you should always ask questions, like show that you're eager to learn. Like if you don't understand anything, sure, take it out, take out the first 10, 15 minutes to understand it or do it by yourself. But if you don't, always ask questions as to why is this happening? Can, I, can you show me how it's done or anything that you don't understand? It just shows that you're eager to learn, right? And, you know, third thing I would say is like, when you actually join, you may not know anything or everything at all. And that is okay. As long as you're, you know, willing to put the effort and learn, that's something that's most important. And then the fourth thing I would say is like humility and being humble, right? Like showing excitement in your job, uh, not being arrogant, like being responsive to people uh, when they email you right away, at least telling them, Hey, like, look, I got this. I saw your email. I'll get back to this later on in the day or whenever you get time, that at least that way people know you've read their email and they're not consistently worried that have you got my email or not, right? So yeah, so essentially like as a beginner, like you don't bring a lot to the table, but you're expected to bring excitement and eagerness to learn. And I think if you have these qualities, I think you're definitely, you know, set up for success. And I think the last but not the least, and I think is having a great work ethic, always showing up on time, like, you know, meeting your deadlines, always extending a helping hand to the team, I think that goes a long way. So, yeah. So what are the three things you like the most about your job as an investment banking analyst? I think uh, something that I really like about my job or truly love about my job is the kind of work we do. At the end, like me and my team or my, my team, which I'm part of, are actually providing strategic advice to clients and those are big corporations on mergers, acquisitions, debt and equity raising, the restitutors and so on and so forth. That's something that's really interesting to me. Second thing is basically you actually get to meet and get to be on calls with CEOs, CFOs, and other senior executive members in the in in various companies, and you get to learn a lot from what the way they are thinking about things. You know, and this is something that you don't get to see in a uh, in a normal job or like a day to day. Like you will on your daily in in no normal like it's a very rare opportunity. I would say given like, you know, you're being able to sit with them and understand the way of thinking and being able to learn from them as well. And I think the third third thing is like, you know, you work in a very fast paced environment. You work with intelligent people. You work across various uh, sectors within the industry. You learn about a lot of companies. You build knowledge as to on different products, different industries, segments, and how they operate in a bigger picture scheme. And also like, you know, as a bank where you sit in the big picture and how you facilitate uh, and help your clients out for the greater good. So that's something that's really interesting that I actually mm. like about my job. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about work readiness. So what they call employability, Absolutely. which is one of my keen, uh, one area which I'm very keen on, right? Mm-hmm. Now you said in a previous chat that we had a few weeks ago uh, with Correct. me that there is a gap between theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge, and one should learn <clears throat> to close the gap. Now, Absolutely. in your case, what were the gaps <laughs> you discovered after entering mm-hmm. investment banking, and how did you close this? Okay, so great question. Uh, I think CFA or any professional qualification, right, gives you the theoretical knowledge and understanding uh, of how things are done. And that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is to actually take that and 
put it in practice or actually implementing it, right? That's st stage one is learn, understand the theory. Stage two now is to actually put it in practice, right? So let me give you an example, right? The CFA curriculum by itself teaches you accounting, valuation techniques, like, you know, trading multiples, transaction, DCF, to some extent talks about an LBO and so on and so forth, right? But in the CFA curriculum are questions, right? All of the data points required by you are already given to you. Like sales is given, growth rate is given, like uh, sometimes like you, you got to calculate uh, your return on equity, but like most of times it's given to you or like it's easy to calculate. It's a one-step process to come up with the answer and then solve. And so you are essentially, everything is given to you in a platter to solve the answer and get the answer, right? That's great. But now when you like transfer to a daily work, uh, work situation, when you're doing the same DCF analysis, you got to start by like, collecting data from your 10K or 10Q or investor presentations that are available online. Then you actually end up making a full-blown financial model and then perform the valuation analysis. Uh, and that's, it's a, that's a much longer process, right? Than what was taught in our CFA. At the end, the result is the same, but it's, it's a longer process to actually use Excel to actually implement it. So those are kind of the gaps that I identified. And those are the additional steps you need to take uh, to transform your theoretical knowledge into practical knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So in my experience, basically, I, I also had a similar experience where I had studied all of this in theory, but actually never applied this in practice, right? So I, there was a steep learning curve and it is a fast-paced environment. You are given things, you got to learn things really quick and being able to deliver because deadlines cannot get pushed back. So initially I would spend actually a lot of time first just refreshing my theoretical knowledge but then also spending all my weekends just building financial models and just using different accounting concepts valuation concepts and putting it in practice so i'll just literally take on any company's 10k build out a three statement uh model forecast it ahead uh use various valuation techniques to value your company and just you know get keep practicing that over and over mm -hmm. to essentially become second nature and that's how basically you bridge your gap from having a theoretical knowledge now putting in practice. Mm, yeah. Great. Now I asked you in our earlier talk whether you had any regrets on education career and you said yeah. no. Now that is unusual <laughs> because almost everyone has at least one regret. I know I have several, right? All Even right. the mighty Jeff Bezos of Amazon says you should <laughs> minimize regret uh, and you can't eliminate regret, right? Correct. So tell me <laughs> briefly how you achieved yeah. regret nirvana. Uh, I think it's a great uh, philosophical question, but from my standpoint, right, uh, the way I look at it is slightly different. Like I personally feel that all the experiences, good or bad, from my undergrad to where I am today, have a common theme, and that basically is that from every stage, I've learned something, and that was useful to apply to the next stage, right? And I'm actually grateful for that. Like if I did something and I did not like it, I found other reason as to why I don't like it. And now I know, okay, this is something that I don't want to do in the future. And I make uh, corrections or amendments to it. And it's kind of a learning process, you know? And if I like something, then I'd make sure, okay, I like it. Now let me put in more effort to make myself better at it. So I always believe like in trying everything out and it's okay. Like, you know, sometimes you fail, that's totally fine. You get up, you uh, learn from it. You're free. I think I think the best teachers are actually your failure. That someone who, whoever said that was absolutely right, and uh, that's how you do it, right? I mean, you you fail. You like something. You don't like something. You basically try everything out. That way, you know what you're good at, what you're not good at, and you do not have the fear of missing out on anything. So I guess in my, at least in my viewpoint, I would actually say that I have no regrets, and I believe that all of my experiences together have actually helped me get uh, to where I am today. And I'm hopeful that it will probably play out the same way in the future. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, um, thanks so much, Hanatosh. Uh, all good things come to an end. <laughs> and who <laughs> does this in uh, this very interesting podcast? I'm personally like, and I've told you before, I'm quite amazed and uh, delighted at the same time that, you know, I've seen you from working in a small consulting, IT consulting mm -hmm. firm in Dubai, and now you're in the big league in investment banking on Wall Street. So kudos to you. I think, of course, a lot of uh, all, so all, all the credit goes to uh, your, your attitude and aptitude and in terms of, yeah. you know, learning and uh, networking and the mindset, right? The mindset of not giving of up despite failure in level one, for example, or yeah. not getting into IB in the first shot. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. or, or not many MDs not replying to your approaches towards <laughs> them. 
this is part and parcel of life i think you need to have a growth mindset you need to be mentally tough and it, i think these are all great lessons for youngsters around the world who want to break into finance right Uh, yep. and i hope they learn and i hope this uh, podcast has been uh, not just inspiration but also very insightful on how they should go about yep. doing things and i'm hopeful that like you said i hope it will play out the same way for you in the future as well and uh, yep. i think it's all about mindset it's all Correct. about attitude uh, and once you've got that in place um, and once you work your way then uh, success is almost inevitable is what i would like to say right Yeah. So thank you so much again uh, Hantosh yep. uh, wonderful reconnecting with you after after Absolutely. a while. Absolutely thank you so much Vinod for having me I think it was definitely a pleasure and I think as I said earlier like you know I, I definitely part of my success also belongs to you if I had not met you or had you not guided me out I probably wouldn't be where I am today or it wouldn't be as of an easier transition and be much more of a difficult transition to where I am. That's very generous of you, but, <laughs> but I'll accept that. <laughs> I won't complain. It. Thank you so much, Anitosh, and I wish yeah. you the very best uh, in your Thank career. Thank you so much. Podcast is brought to you by the Real Finance Mentor. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word. And be sure to check out more exclusive content on therealfinancementor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binod Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on therealfinancementor.com and we'll tell you about new episodes, plus book reviews, upcoming events and blogs. Till the next time, onwards and upwards.